1990s just after the Soviet Union's collapse, a PPS documentary producer was selected by a bipartisan group in Congress to bring one of America's most iconic children's shows to the revolutionized Russia, but she was left shocked by the events that unfolded in her five years abroad. I was tasked to bring this show to a country that was in the need of transitioning to a modern, open society. Natasha Rogoff, former executive producer and co-director of Sesame Street in Russia, said in an interview on Mornings with Maria Wednesday. And I was shocked at what I discovered when I came and how difficult it was to create a team and find financing. It was very difficult. Rogoff's latest book, titled Muppets in Moscow, details the wild, and often life-threatening, stories that surrounded and intimidated the Russian adaptation and making of Sesame Street. After the show became a hit following its inaugural year on air, its first two broadcasting partners were allegedly assassinated, before one of the show's investors had his car blown up. Rogoff claimed she had been in that same car just three weeks prior. Nissan pulls out of Russia, sells all assets to state for one euro. The biggest challenge producers faced, Rogoff noted, was the cultural clash taking place in a recently crumbled totalitarian nation. We proposed having a lemonade stand, and in a country where business was illegal, they said that would be shameful to teach children how to sell things on the street, only criminals do that, Rogoff detailed. And then, the scriptwriters said we got scripts that were like 10 pages long, and one of the early ones was teaching lettered for depression. While making Sesame Street in Russia, former executive producer and co-director Natasha Rogoff said it was very difficult to build a team and get financing on mornings with Maria Wednesday, October 19, 2022. Getty Images Despite the unprecedented period showmakers faced during Sesame Street's production, Rogoff touted how the show resonated with a new generation of Russians. Making Sesame Street, I would say, pitted Sesame Street's progressive, upbeat, fun values against 300 years of Russian thought, Rogoff said. The show went on to become an incredible hit. It lasted for 10 years, well into Putin's era. When I meet Russians now all over the world and I mention Zilliboba, which is one of the three new Russian characters, an eight-foot, blue, furry spirit of nature with pieces of fur and the moss in his costume, these now grown-up 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds sometimes break out in song from that show, the former producer continued. Another reason the show found success was due to its combination of comedy and sensibility around fraught questions, according to Rogoff and that it aired across 11 time zones in all former Soviet territories, including Ukraine. When we first met with educators, they asked, you're tasking us as a group to come up with a vision of what our country and the new independent country should look like in an open society, but we don't know what an open society looks like, Rogoff said. From Mexico to India, from South Africa to Northern Ireland. There have been co-productions of Sesame Street specifically tailored to a local audience. So when the Cold War ended in the early 1990s, Russia and other former Soviet Republicans beckoned like cookies to Cookie Monster. What could possibly go wrong? The secret history of Sesame Street, it was utopian. It's part of who we all are. Read more. The unexpected crazy true story of Alitza Sizam 
Sesame Street in Russian, is told by Natasha Lance Rogoff in a highly entertaining and readable new book, Muppets in Moscow, which recounts a litany of cultural clashes, Wild West-style assassinations and dashed hopes about the post-communist era. These stories are a deep dive into Russian culture and an experience where Sesame Street's progressive values are pitted against 300 years of Russian thought, Lance Rogoff, 62, says by phone from Aspen, Colorado, where she is attending a conference. Through the experience of struggling to create a version of Sesame Street in Russia you're able to grapple with the tensions that exist in post-Soviet society that we're still dealing with today. Lance Rogoff was the perfect choice to become lead producer of Alitsosism and bridge the cultural divide. As a teenager in New York, she fell in love with Russian literature and even changed her legal name from Susan to Natasha. She studied Russian in college and, at 22, moved to Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, as an exchange student. She befriended artists and dissidents and wrote articles about underground culture in the Soviet Union for international magazines and newspapers. These included the groundbreaking gay life in the Soviet Union in the San Francisco Chronicle in 1983. That same year she married a gay friend to help him escape persecution by the government. I just felt at that age that I had to do something, she explains. The executive producer Natasha Lance Rogoff, with puppeteers Elena Teschenskaya and Andrei Kuzichev with their Muppets Buzinku and Kubik, on the first day of shooting Alitsasazam in Moscow's ORT TV studio. Photograph. Natasha Lance Rogoff. The marriage ended after three years but would change the course of Lance Rogoff's career, effectively ending her ambitions to become a diplomat. Back in the U.S., she studied at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and was selected for a fellowship at the State Department, which required high-level national security clearance. But at FBI headquarters, she overheard the agent conducting her interview tell a colleague in a southern drawl, there's no way this gal's gonna work for the government of the United States of America. She combined two things that are a no-number commies and queers. Her clearance denied, Lance Rogoff returned to Moscow and found work as a TV producer. Then, in 1993, came the call from Sesame Workshop to make Hulitsasazam, the start of a four-year odyssey working with hundreds of directors, musicians, writers, producers, set designers, puppeteers, animators and actors. She soon discovered things that had been divided by an iron curtain were still at odds. For a start, while Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev had discussed many things, including intermediate-range nuclear missiles, they never signed a Muppets treaty. When we were developing the Slavic Muppets, the creative team initially said, We don't want your Muppets. We have our own revered puppet tradition dating back to the 16th century, Lance Rogoff recalls. Eventually, after several months with the help of some of the team members who really loved the Muppets, we got them to begin designing their own Muppets. Their first design for Alitsasazam was an old man with a beard who would tell children what they needed to know and how to behave in New Russia. I said, wouldn't it be better if the character was a child so children could really relate to the Muppet? The head writer at that time said, you can't expect children to learn from children. Everything was a process. 
There were also moments when capitalism collided with the legacy of communism. Lance Rogoff continues, It was a very humbling experience because I realized how little I understood about Russia in the process of designing the content for the series. We were at a curriculum seminar in the Danilov Monastery in Moscow and there were about 40 educators from across the former Soviet Union. Everybody's talking about what do we want to teach. How do we teach our children about this new society? We're all throwing around ideas and I suggest, what about writing a scenario where children are running a lemonade stand, and the reaction to that uniformly was it would be shameful to show children selling things on the street. She adds, there was a whole argument about the word business and should we be teaching children to engage in business? You cannot assume after 70 years of communism that we're just going to flip a switch and people are suddenly going to be able to even conceptualize what a new, more open society looks like. Muppets Cubic and Buzinka sharing a moment with Katyamka Ilovskaya and Tiger in the Ulitsa Sazam studio neighborhood. Photograph, courtesy of Irina Borisova. At first a head writer of the show only wanted to hire established authors of Soviet children's literature. But these writers turned in scripts that were ten pages long and too abstract for kids to understand. Lance Rogoff says, the scripts that we got to teach geography were almost 100% about leaving Russia, like going off to France and eating foie gras. We were teaching the concepts of happy and sad and there's a little boy and a little girl who are holding a balloon and walking together in the park, and the little boy accidentally lets go of his balloon. He starts crying and the little girl looks at him and he's upset so she lets go of her balloon too. Then they stand it together and watch the two balloons go up in the sky. As an American looking at this I'm like, well, that's kind of nuts, why don't they just share the other balloon? Then I realized this script was a quintessentially Russian script. It was about the beauty and sharing having nothing together. It reminded me of the Tolstoy story Master and Slave. There were many moments related to script writing that were really unexpected. To top it all, production unfolded amid the whiplash of post-Soviet Russia's sudden switch from communist to free market capitalism, an uncertain period of food shortages, lawlessness lost livelihoods, political chaos and pitiless violence. Several heads of Russian television, with whom Lance Rogoff was closely collaborating, were assassinated one after another. Among them was Vladislav Listayev, a prominent TV journalist and democracy advocate. His 1995 murder has never been solved. Lance Rogoff had spent months negotiating, and drinking, with Listayev to get Alitsa Sazam on air. He was our confidant, sharing advice with us about how to navigate the Russian TV industry, advertising was very corrupt at that time. The day that we went to the TV station and discovered that, that he had been gunned down the night before was absolutely shocking and left me wondering if it was really possible to continue. There were so many courageous men like him who were trying to create a free press and also trying to stamp out corruption and create a society for children. When I first met him, he said he knew about Sesame Street and then he said it's never more important than now, our children need to develop new new skills and values in order to be successful in the world. He did as much as he could to help us as we were trying to assemble the team and raise the money and all the other things we were doing. 
On another terrifying occasion, Russian soldiers armed with AK-47 rifles descended on Lance Rogoff's production office and confiscated scripts, sir drawings and even the office mascot, a life-sized Elmo. I asked the Russian executive producer, why did they do that? And he was like, oh, he probably has a son, you know? Natasha Lance Rogoff. Photograph, Martha Stewart. Despite it all, Alatsa Sazam made it to air in October 1996 starring Zilaboba, an eight-feet-tall hound-like animal with floppy ears, long muscle and keen sense of smell, he could even smell music. Lance Rogoff produced 52 half-hour episodes broadcast over two years. It was a big hit. She recalls, the night that the show airs, I go outside and I can see with my colleague all the colors changing in unison in the windows of the apartment buildings. We realize that they're watching the show because there was so much press about it before it came out. Alatsa Sazam ended in 2007 but the memory lingers on for a generation of Russians as Lance Rogoff, now based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, discovered when she last visited the country two years ago. I checked into the, the hotel and I always ask people, if they're in their 20s and 30s, do you know Alatsa Sazam? The two women shrieked and started singing one of the songs. I'm so proud of what we accomplished there and it's heartbreaking now to be in touch with my colleagues on WhatsApp. So many of them had to flee after the war, in Ukraine, started because of their opposition to it. McDonald's arrived in Russia in 1990. Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, famously featured in a 1997 TV advertisement for Pizza Hut. Looking back, it seems like too much too soon. Another failure of Western imagination. Gorbachev died last month but lived long enough to see Vladimir Putin undo much of his legacy, culminating in the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and committing of heinous war crimes. Lance Rogoff reflects, From my experience making Sesame Street there, I understood how important it was to take into account Russia's historical background, their difficulties, the fact that they were transitioning and transition takes time. It takes time for consciousness to change and the expectation of doing shock therapy capitalism was very fast for average people living in post-Soviet society who were grappling with incredible pain. At that time, policy was very heavily focused on macroeconomics and stabilizing the ruble and there were many people in Congress, including Senator Biden, who understood the value of soft power in helping nations to develop the cultural capital to be able to make some of these larger changes. The author wonders, maybe it was our exuberance to see ourselves in the other and not recognizing how historically different our experiences are, us with 200 years of democracy and Russia with their tragic history of turmoil and constant instability. People are human. People can only take so much turmoil. Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia is out now. Excerpt from Star Trek episode episode Star Trek, the original series Assignment, Earth, TV episode 1968, Assignment, Earth, directed by Mark Daniels. With Will that was very prophetic, we have analyzed the direction of his beam, sir. Our star maps show no habitable planets in that area of the galaxy. Spock however, he did say his planet is hidden, Captain. Kirk, into intercom, 
Engineering. Briefing room viewing screen dissolves to Scott, Scott, filtered, still unable to analyze it, Captain. It was so powerful it fused most of our recording circuits. More, continued, Star Trek Times Assignment, Earth Times Final Draft 11. 20 continued, 20 Scott, Conti, shrugs, could have brought him over great distances, could have brought him back through time. There is no way for us to know Kirk. Spock, historical report. Spock current Earth crises would fill a tape bank, Captain. He could be interfering for, or against Earth in areas of overpopulation, bush wars, revolutions, critically dangerous bacteriological experiments, hate movements springing up. Kirk, interrupting, specific events today. Spock there will be an important assassination, an equally dangerous government coup in Asia. Checks Feinberger clipboard, and this could be highly critical, the launching of a suborbital nuclear warhead platform by the United States countering a similar launch by other powers. 21 Another angle 21 to include door snapping open in BG, and McCoy entering to cross in and sit in three shot. Kirk, interrupting, weren't orbital nuclear devices one of the greatest worries of this era? Spock, nods, most definitely. Once the sky was full of orbiting H-bombs, the slightest mistake could have brought one of them accidentally down and set off a nuclear holocaust. Star Trek Times Assignment, Earth Times Final Draft 22 int. Brig angle past 7 on 2 force field doorway 22-7 tests the force field, animation, the security guard hears the sound and moves in, watching him. Carefully. 7 turns away, takes his ballpoint servo from his pocket and makes an adjustment on it using his body to shield from the sight of the alert guard. 23 angle outside force field doorway 23 the armed guarding the back of 7 who, from this angle seems to be slumped and resigned to being a prisoner. Satisfied, the guard goes over to the side of the door out of 7's view, takes upper position there with his back to the wall. Cloud flare mitigated record distributed denial of service, DDoS, attack against Wincroft, one of the largest Minecraft servers. Cloudflare announced it as mitigated record distributed denial of service, DDoS, attack against Wincroft, one of the largest Minecraft servers. The Cloudflare DDoS Threat Report 2022 Q3 states that multi-terabit massive DDoS attacks have become increasingly frequent. In Q3, the company mitigated multiple attacks that exceeded 1 TPPS. The largest attack was a 2.5 TPPS TDOS attack against the Minecraft server, it was launched by Amirat Botnet. The largest attack was a 2.5 TPPS TDOS attack launched by Amirat Botnet variant, aimed at the Minecraft server, Wincroft. This is the largest attack we've ever seen from the bitrate perspective states the report published by the company. It was a multi-vector attack consisting of UDP and TCP floods. However, Wincroft, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game Minecraft server where hundreds and thousands of users can play on the same server, didn't even notice the attack, since Cloudflare filtered it out for them the malicious traffic was composed of UDP and TCP packets, the attack lasted for about 2 minutes. DDoS The report also states that that application layer DDoS attacks increased by 111% compared to last year.
The researchers also noticed that L3 forced DDoS attacks powered by mirror-based botnet increased by 405%. The gaming-slash-gambling industry was the most targeted by L3 forced distributed denial-of-service attacks. The report also states that ransom distributed denial-of-service attacks increased compared to the last year. In Q3, 15% of Cloudflare customers that responded to our survey reported being targeted by HTTP DDoS attacks accompanied by a threat or a ransom note. This represents a 15% increase QoQ and 67% increase YoY of reported ransom DDoS attacks continues the report. The country that was most targeted by HTTP DDoS attacks was Taiwan. The experts reported an increase of 200% compared to the last quarter, followed by Japan, 105%. The countries most targeted by HTTP distributed denial-of-service attacks were the United States, followed by China and Cyprus. Network layer attacks targeted mainly hit targets in Singapore, the US, and China. The experts also warn of the abuse of the BitTorrent file sharing protocol that rose by over 1,200% QoQ. The experts reported a resurgence of attacks abusing the charge and protocol, the ubiquity discovery protocol, and memsash reflection attacks. Over the years, it has become easier, cheaper, and more accessible for attackers and attackers for hire to launch DDoS attacks. But as easy as it has become for the attackers, we want to make sure that it is even easier and free for defenders of organizations of all sizes to protect themselves against DDoS attacks of all types concludes the report. Jason Allen won this year's prize in digital arts at the Colorado State Fair with an image titled Theater d'Opera Spatial. The image depicts a stage populated by figures in flowing velvet robes, illuminated by a massive circular porthole, looking out onto a mountain range. Allen's work looks like the product of many careful hours manipulating digital photos in a program like Photoshop. Instead, the image was created using Midjourney, an AI system that turns text prompts, a dark theater stage lit by a circular portal say, or whatever Allen typed in into original digital images. Allen was transparent about his process, submitting his work as Jason M. Allen via Midjourney. The Colorado State Fair judges stated that his piece was permitted within the rules of the category he entered, still, there's been a predictable backlash to Allen's work from critics who worry both that digitally generated art will outcompete the work of human artists and that human artists are being exploited by AI image generation systems. Programs like Midjourney, other systems include Dolly and Stable Diffusion, generate new images using algorithms trained on millions of photographs, paintings and digital images, all of which were produced by humans. Allen is leaning into this controversy, telling the New York Times, Art is dead, dude. It's over. AI won. Humans lost. AI has conquered other fields of human endeavor before. In 1996, an IBM supercomputer named Deep Blue played chess champion Garry Kasparov and lost, four matches to two. Upgraded and reprogrammed, Deep Blue won the rematch a year later, leading Kasparov to complain that IBM had cheated. Deep Blue's victory led to countless conversations about whether artificial intelligence was finally challenging human capabilities. 
Most computer scientists urged caution, winning at chess is an example of domain-specific intelligence, not general intelligence. A computer as powerful as Deep Blue could simulate billions of possible games and choose moves that led to the best outcome. Our phones are now so powerful that the mobile version of Stockfish, an open-source chess program, would beat Deep Blue easily, as well as any human grandmaster. But despite the ability to play chess at a superhuman level, computer algorithms still struggle with tasks that humans do routinely, such as driving in city traffic. Notwithstanding, enthusiastic promises made by tech leaders like Elon Musk, who predicted that a self-driving Tesla would navigate across the United States in 2017, AI often struggles in complex, real-world situations, where algorithms can fail in unanticipated ways. Princeton computer scientists Syash Kapoor and Arvind Narayanan suggest AI celebrants are overconfident in the power of their systems. In their new book on AI Snake Oil, they note success in one field of intelligence does not necessarily translate well to another, solving problems of perception, where computer vision systems have made great strides, does not mean you can solve problems of prediction, where AI still has great difficulties. As encouraged by entrepreneurs like Mark Zuckerberg, Kapoor and Narayanan suggest that AI developers are often moving fast and breaking things. But this approach is a poor fit for healthcare or self-driving cars where a single failure can be catastrophic. The last 10% is 90% of the effort. Yet even Kapoor and Narayanan acknowledge that deep learning approaches to artificial intelligence have made vast strides in areas much less constrained than playing chess. New algorithms are extremely successful at recognizing objects in complex scenes, transcribing speech and, now, creating novel images from text prompts. As social media fills with computer-generated art experiments, Mona Lisa riding a motorcycle. A herd of giraffes in the style of Van Gogh exclamation mark it's hard not to feel like something ineffably human is being challenged. Will Midjourney and other programs begin to fill modern art galleries with works prompted, but not executed, by humans? Will illustrators, like those who illustrate this magazine, become obsolete? I've been weighing these questions ever since talking with my friend Mike Sugarman, an expert in this field. I think it's possible that AI will achieve these things, but it's just as likely that something more complex and interesting will emerge from their interaction between humans and these new tools. Consider the drum machine. The world of Sidemen, invented in 1959, was so threatening to professional drummers that the American Association of Musicians sought to have it banned. But when drum machines became small, digital and affordable, with the Roland TR-808 in 1980, they changed the sound of popular music. While drum machines are now very good, you're unlikely to find one on stage at a rock or jazz concert. Great living drummers, Armour Questlove Thompson, Dave Grohl, will still draw in fans. But hip-hop, in particular, has seen a revolution. In one of this year's best books, De Time, journalist Dan Channers documents the contributions of producer James Dewitt Yancey, 
better known as Jada, a servant of the Akai MPC drum machine, before his untimely death at 32 after battling lupus, decreated a wealth of beats that challenged perceptions of what drumming can do. These are deeply unpredictable, with the bass drum and snare falling at unusual intervals, hard for human drummers to replicate. Detapped his beats into his Akai, then nudged the sounds, microseconds at a time, into configurations not even he could play, manually. The resulting off-kilter, drunk-sounding rhythms have been so influential that Chanas argues for a third rhythmic feel, beyond the straight time of classical music and drum machines and the swing time of jazz and blues, to time, a rhythm only possible at the meeting of human and machine. Composer Holly Herndon, who has a doctorate from Stanford in computer music, has released a tool called Holy Plus which allows performers to sing in her voice. Herndon showcased the tool at the 2022 TED conference by inviting musician and singer for to perform a duet with himself. With one mic, Fuzz deep baritone anchored the song, while the second mic transformed Fuzz voice into Holy Plus S mezzo-soprano, an octave higher, Herndon herself stood silent on stage. As Herndon points out, there, existence of high-quality AI tools for musicians raises issues of intellectual property. Could someone go on tour as Herndon with Holly Plus, without her permission? She and her husband, digital artist Matt Dryhurst, have released a tool with the spawning AI collaborative venture called Have I Been Trained, which allows visual artists to see if their work has been used in databases that train systems, like Midjourney. Their goal is to create AI tools that augment human creativity, but to allow artists to opt in or out of having their creations used as raw material for AI systems. As artificial intelligence leaps forward, so do humans. Jason Allen is trolling as Spider Claring Art is dead. Instead, a new way of making art, at the intersection of AI and human skill, is being born. Voicemails from Detroit. Yeah, basically in a nutshell, it's just them keeping this whole circle of stupidity really going. Um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the joke is, you know, it's the cancel culture. It's interesting because let's you know take it from one side to another. Um, maybe a, a liberal will say, okay, we got a ban Fahrenheit.
um, basically up to the, the radio station, obviously adhering to the app. But as I look at it, it's just, you know, this little circle jerk they keep doing, I'll uh, just get people talking about it, you know, keep that going on. There's tons of other things to talk about, you know. But like I said, they always pick one topic, two topics. Um, and it's interesting because the, the first topic, say censorship, they're breaking along the First Amendment, freedom of speech, you know. Sock puppet. Freedom of religion. Since freedom of art, you know, um, you don't have to like it. Once again, I don't like the fact that people burn flags, but they burn the flag. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what they do. I mean, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's kind of how they work Hollywood, too, is like they blacklist you. You remember the, I think it was the McCarthy days, they were blacklisting everybody, said they were a communist. You know, I think they labeled like, uh, who was it, uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin, he was a communist, you know, everybody's a communist, everybody's something. So now they've got you under that thumb of, like, the Hollywood thumb or whatever it is, and you, you better say what we say or we're going to blacklist you. I mean, it's, sometimes, too, I think it's, like I said, people just put this stuff out there, you know. And it's, yeah, I mean, look at, you know, the TV industry. I mean, it's changed, and it, it's, it really is. It's just a factor of almost like a, a mind factor. It's like you're going to take it down one more level. Um, I think, like I said, it was just like shows from the 70s, the 80s, you know, they showed people what life was about, and it was pretty cool shows, you know. I mean, I grew up watching television probably around the 1990s, but for the most part, you know, it was pretty cool, you know, overall. Now, it's more like, well, we're going to tell you how to... It's, it's, all, it's all shot, basically, now that you're involved with everybody's drama. You know, point of view, they break away from the action, and you t they talk to you sort of on their own solo, and they tell you how they feel about the bachelor or the, or the guy building the bike or whatever that may be. It's pretty simple concept it's like now you can relate to the characters and that's how you know they have this whole dancing with the stars basically it's censorship you're going to censor people off the show you know like i said the whole cluster thing you know it's always quite an interesting thing it's you know it's like a lot of people are like well you know he just this, this, this and I'm like you weren't there first of all okay you've heard from somebody who's heard from somebody who's heard from somebody well first of all let's just get something straight if it wasn't for Custer, you'd still be under the South, basically their flag that you're bitching about right now with, that's on the Dukes of Hazard car. So that's the way it works. So, And once again, Custer wasn't the main guy. It was the president of the United States or whoever was in charge of putting these people to go out to war. That's what they did. They went out to war, not because of Custer. Custer probably didn't want to go to war. He'd rather sit at home, obviously. Nope. We're going to tell you what to do. There's this crazy tribe of individuals way out here, and they're all kind of crazy, and we want you to take care of it. Well, like I said, I don't know. We weren't there. But once again, everybody knows everything about everything. But there you go. 675,000 results. 0.55. The Guardian. Muppets in Moscow. The wild story behind Sesame Street in Russia. It was Big Bird diplomacy. In his days as a U.S. Senator, 
Joe Biden led congressional support for international versions of Sesame Street. One day ago, Metro. Cookie Monster's real name has blown Sesame Street fans' minds. Sesame Street star Cookie Monster has blown people's minds by revealing his real name picture. Nathan Congleton, NBC, the NBCU photo bank buyer. Eight hours ago. SYFY. Exclusive. Jacob Batalon retracts his Reginald the Vampire fangs to hang with Big Bird on Sesame Street. He might be a vampire, but Batalon's a model of good behavior while chilling on the Sesame Street set. By Benjamin Bullard. Five hours ago. Vulture. The many challenges of adapting Sesame Street for Russian TV. Almost 30 years ago, not long after the collapse of the Soviet Communist Empire, Sesame Workshop, the company that produces Sesame Street. Two days ago. Tough Pigs. Cookie Monster said his real name is Sid, but don't get too worked up about it. By Ryan Rowe October 17, 2022 Commentary, Feature. Here's what happened. The official Sesame Street TikTok account posted a clip of a song from the show. Two days ago. New York Post. The challenge of making Sesame Street for Russians. When the Russian version of Sesame Street, Yulitsa Sesame, first aired in Russia in October 1996, there was a premiere event at a Moscow. Four days ago. The Washington Post. Meet Sesame Street's first black female puppeteer, Megan Piffus Peace. Megan Piffus Peace, who until last month was working as a real estate agent, joined the cast of Sesame Street. One month ago. The New York Times. Sesame Street. The Musical Review. Everything's A-OK. -okay. Jonathan Rockefeller's off-Broadway production blends the charm and wit of the show's early days with more modern characters. Three weeks ago. NPR. What Sesame Street's first black female puppeteer learned in her first year. It wasn't until September 2021 that Sesame Street, which started in November 1969, got its first full-time black female puppeteer. Three weeks ago. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Milwaukee Rohingya helped Sesame Workshop make new. Mohammed Adam, 5, watches Sesame Street in the Rohingya language with 6-year. Sobia Anwar, 10, gathered with other Rohingya children in A. One day ago. Smithsonian Magazine. The story of Yulitsa Sesame, the Russian version of Sesame. The Sesame Street spin-off set out to be the first Russian language. The Children's Television Workshop, CTW, now known as Sesame. Five days ago. The Sun. Sesame Street fans open-mouthed after finding out the Cookie Monster's real name. Sesame Street fans have been left open-mouthed after finding out the Cookie Monster's real name. The furry blue character has been on our. Four hours ago. Sesame Workshop. Sesame Street's 53rd season launches Thursday, November. Sesame Workshop is the non-profit educational organization behind Sesame Street, the pioneering television show that has been reaching and two weeks ago. 
Bronx Times. From the South Bronx to Sesame Street, Sonia Manzono. From the moment Sonia Manzono made her first on-screen appearance as Maria on the long-running Sesame Street, she has been a constant force. One day ago, Al Arabiya Sesame Workshop, Viatris Launch Mental Health Support for M.East Families. Viatris Inc., the global healthcare company, and Sesame Workshop, the makers of Sesame Street, have launched new bilingual resources for 10 hours ago. Smithsonian Magazine. Meet the first black woman puppeteer on Sesame Street. Meet the first black woman puppeteer on Sesame Street. Megan Piffer's piece, 29, plays a six-year-old black girl named Gabrielle. Aquilin. Two weeks ago. NPR. Jonathan Rockefeller brings Sesame Street to life off-Broadway. Sesame Street the Musical is a new, off-Broadway show staring Cookie Monster, Grover, Elmo and the rest of the Muppets. Four weeks ago. CBR. Sesame Street fans are shocked by Cookie Monster sharing. Many Sesame Street viewers believed their favorite Cookie Gobbling puppet was simply called Cookie Monster, but his official Twitter says. Four days ago. OPB. Sesame Street's first black female puppeteer wants to keep inspiration flowing. Megan Piffer's piece stands on the set of Sesame Street with her The Guardian, Muppets in Moscow, the wild story behind Sesame Street in Russia. It was Big Bird Diplomacy. In his days as a State United Senator, Joe Biden led congressional support for him. U.S. Showrunners for Sesame Street have come forward to the accusations that Bert and Ernie are in secret service to the Kremlin. Feeding information to Russia's leaders in order to undermine the interests of the United States. The statement came in response to a writer for the show, who stated that S has always thought of Bert and Ernie. S. Showrunners for Sesame Street have come forward to deny accusations that Bert and Ernie are in secret service to the Kremlin. Feeding information to Russia's leaders in order to undermine the interests of the United States. The statement came in response to a writer for the show, who stated that he's always thought of Bert and Ernie as KGB while writing their scenes. Viewers pointed out that Ernie's constant reminiscing over the motherland and Bert's propensity for reading communist literature, as he ignored Ernie's incoherent ramblings suggested that the two may actually be Russian agents. Bert and Ernie are puppets and are therefore apolitical characters, without any ability to sell government secrets to Putin, Sesame Street representatives wrote on the show's Twitter account. We wrote the characters to talk about friendship, and they are in no way Russian spies. Seriously, they are puppets. Stop making such a big deal about whether or not they are members of your proletariat uprising, the tweet concluded. At publishing time, Oscar the Grouch had been accused of being enlisted by the CIA to wiretap Bert and Ernie's phone.
in the morning, they say we're going to show you the news on CBS. It's entertainment because they always open with Trevor Noah and the late night comedians. So now it's all about the comedians giving us their shtick. Then they package it and they call it news. It's actually entertainment. Yeah. It's like a lawsuit. 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 There's no, there's no like, um, there's no fidelity, there's no fidelity in the news. Not even, it's like you said, it's not news anymore. It's thought of as entertainment and sort of, you know, I think people watch the news to sort of like, you know, experience that weird schadenfreude thing. Where you just get to look at, and I like especially with the local news, you just get to look at the freaking, um, the, 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 you know, whatever. For people in the country, the horrors of living in the city, you know, like all these cars. They just posted it this morning. Yeah. They just posted a video on Breitbart for some reason came through, and it's all about Minneapolis last night, what happened downtown. Yeah. People jumping on cars, tipping cars over, riding, breaking in stores. CBS, they've got it in a database. They've got it on a cloud server, the kind where their arm pulls up a disk and takes it out, that kind of thing. Yeah. They already have all the footage. You're just piling together and doing what the, you know, the producer says. So my question here is, given that piece of knowledge that, you know, news reporters or even editors that I used to know back in the day were 
going out into the field to record stuff, if we don't have that ability anymore, then what happens with these Breitbarts? Where now you're getting crowdsourced record? I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts here? There's a vacuum that has been created by, again, by the crowdfunding. So, CBS makes, they, they, they spend less money on um, acquisition of their media. So, they're not spending a bunch of money getting, you know, getting footage of the city, getting, you know, getting whatever. They're saving that money. And so they're not really doing reporting on the ground. They're not really on the media. No, they're not. And that's what happened during the uprising after George Floyd was killed. It was these local affiliates sort of keeping their distance and like shooting, you know, shooting a, a bit of footage, but then buying footage from people who were on the ground and then manipulating that footage and then telling their own narrative around it. Like, nobody was really on the ground. And so that, that, in my view, that creates a vacuum that needs to be filled by independent journalists, a lot of whom have um, specific, you know, political agendas. And that is just like a really tough place to be where, where, you know, you want to hear... You know, like, if you want to read something specific about um, the, the, the drug war and cartels, the only people covering the cartels and the drug war in Mexico, it's only conservative media covering it. Because they have a specific policy agenda to move forward, which is anti-immigration. Now... That would be fine if there were other news stations covering it from a different perspective, but there's no coverage of the cartel wars on anything except for conservative media because it doesn't serve the profit motive of the left to talk about whatever, you know, whatever thing they want to talk about in relation to the cartels. Yeah, it's kind of newsworthy. And right. for the right, it's absolutely newsworthy because their, their viewers, their audience, wants to see how fucked up people are in Mexico, yeah. wants to see right. how fucked up the drug war is. Yeah. And, they, and they, they, that's the story they want. And so, so you, know, you, get your, you get your side of the story that's presented by you know, the people that want to tell us specific oh, sure that's the that is the curse of journalism it's not objective right and my point too is that we saw this coming pre-pandemic pre-george yeah. floyd you, you i don't know if you agree with this but you know they the media industry they've been pushing for crowdsourcing and i heard this years before the pandemic it was like we're moving towards crowdsourcing we want to decentralize the news. We don't want to pay for these reporters to lug out their big cameras. We want people to record stuff on their phones and send it to us. You know, uh, we want to save money, et cetera, et cetera. You know, crowdsourcing was big. And especially when they started to dissolve these newspapers. 
Remember when they were dissolving these newspapers and closing over the years? So, you know, why do we need news writers, reporters anymore when we've got people that are on the ground? You know, and I, and you're you're compromising it because you don't have people that are technically adept at reporting. But you are getting your first hand account. Which is For the news stores, for the news stations, it's cheaper for them to get 80% of the product. Like, if you pay 50% of the price for a product that 80% of what you previously got, you're going to make that choice every time. Because you're, you're, you're still getting something that your, your audience can see clear value. Yeah, POV, yeah. Yeah, you get the POV for free, right? And you're certain that they're going to capture the news because they've got a phone. What happens? Oh, yeah, we got a news breaking. The guy's got to pack his stuff and get in the truck. By the time he gets there, it's over. So there's a lot of factors going on in information and how it's delivered, restructured. It's fascinating. It's really distressing around election time. Yeah. I think because even more than before, people have narratives. People have narratives they want to push, they have policy they want to push, and they're going to use the, you know, like they're going to use things like drag racing downtown to, you know, push the narrative that downtown Minneapolis is super dangerous because of Tim Walls, and that's why we have to vote for Dr. Scott Jensen. It's so dangerous downtown. Tigger made himself king, but in order to make himself king, he made he had to make a, an enemy. So he went to Rabbit's house and got a bunch of things, and he made a jaguar. So everybody was fearful of the jaguar. And all it was was a blanket, a pillow, and a broomstick. So, yeah. Isn't that interesting? A child's book? Yeah. Jaguar. And, uh, you know, uh, but what was I going to say about the news cycle um, and creating that? Um, I, I, I they're what they believe because they're looking for sources of information because the whole system is crumbled. So they crumble the system, right? So think about it. This is the way I see it. The media crumbled, and then at the same time, they're trying to build up bricks on top of all the rubble. So when we walk past, we go, oh, the wall's still standing, and it's not the same wall. They just took those broken bricks and tried to reassemble it. Yeah. It's like you're I'm gonna spoon you something and I'm I'm gonna tell you it's news when in fact it's something else. You're gonna trust me. It's it, that it's news. Okay. You know, it's like but I know it's not it. You know. 
it's totally, it's totally, it's like, okay. It's instead of mango juice, the kid asked for orange juice. And you gave him, like, you know, Sunny D, um, you know, like some, some Sunny D thing, right, where it's, it's not orange juice, but it's like orange juice. But it's not. It's sweeter. It's, <laughs> it's sweeter. It's sweeter than orange juice. It's, yeah. it's worse for you than orange. It's like it's not actually orange juice. It's worse for you, but it satisfies. It satisfies that part of you that wanted orange juice, and it might even make you more happy. It might even make, it might even taste better than the orange juice, especially if you're a child who wants something sweet, who wants mm-hmm. sort of more satisfaction. You know, and that's I think exactly what it is. It's, you know, you, you're asking for orange juice and getting sunny D and being told it's orange juice. Mm. It's like, oh, like that's, just, oh, that's, a tough, that's a tough bit. That's a tough stain. Yeah. Well, it's like, how do you, how do you get rid of a stain like that? Mm. If that's like a, the way the entire news media is operating. And it's like, I don't know. Thing, that's all it is. All profit motive. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you see uh, Biden's red speech last month? He was like, it was packed, like, packed, was all red. Yeah. I did see it. Okay, did you know that mid, mid-speech, CNN dialed down the color to pink? Oh, no. Yes. And people were tweeting about it, going, what am I looking at? And they're adjusting the color in the stream, bro. <laughs> because it was too, they, CNN said, they called Dark Brandon, they said, Dark Brandon is too creepy and dystopian. So, so they dialed them down to pink. What's that about? No, but, the, but just the idea that CNN's changing the color, like, yeah, like what is it that I, as a consumer, can't take? Why pink? Yeah. So funny. I mean, it's so funny that I did not know. You didn't know they did that midstream? Yeah. Midstream, huh? Yeah, they're dialing the color. I can but only you imagine. You gotta do it slowly. You gotta do it slowly over time because you're not shocked. Yeah. Like the slow fade of the color Yeah, but it would be interesting if you could ever look at that. Go Google the tweets when people are realizing they're changing the color and people are on social media responding to it. Yeah, what's happening?
No, I'm not really familiar, but. Oh, okay. Um, Proud was chanting fuck Joe Biden. Oh, jeez. Proud was chanting fuck Joe Biden. And one of the sportscasters, newscasters, um, instead of saying what the crowd was saying, interpreted it as, oh, they're, they're, they're cheering, there's a certain racer whose first name is Brandon. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the newscaster said, oh, they're, you hear people chanting, let's go, Brandon. In the in the crowds, they're chanting, let's go, Brandon. And you can clearly hear that they're saying, fuck Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. So that's where the Brandon thing comes from, right? Yeah. So it was, it was what um, a lot of conservative people were, were calling him. They would call him Brandon. It's like a joke. It's like a, basically a way to say, fuck Joe Biden. And just, you know, they would say, let's go, Brandon. And so um, the left, like, reclaimed that in a way. Yeah. Um, when when Joe would like do something like uh, like like when he forgave student loan debt or when he you know like talked shit to like a Republican congressman, they, they, they would make memes calling him Dark Brandon um, because you know when when like the the theory is that like when you let Joe Biden actually govern, he's like a pretty like hardcore. I don't know. This is a theory. I, I, I'm not with this, but the theory is that, like, yeah, like he's a hardcore political activist guy, and will will really fight with the Republicans, and will really be, you know, yada yada yada. Like it was a way for the left to like reclaim the name Brandon for for them, and it was like a pretty strong political win, I thought, because like I don't know everybody now. It's like you know, I don't know, like both sides have a a way to identify their, their their guy as like a positive way of using this word Brandon. It's just so stupid, but well, what about the glowing eyes? <laughs> that's just like a that's just like a way to make the meme work. Yeah. You know? <laughs> just like a way to make it even more more forceful or strong. That that you know I think it's just like all kind of like a joke in a way. You know all this reminds me of information war. Well, not so much Alex Jones, but the idea of information war. That not only are the Russians engaged in it, but we are engaged in it politically. You know. And and that's what media is about. It's now who can get the most out. You know, with social media and everything, the internet. Yeah. 